is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. We're live. We're in studio. And we're going to start out talking about our weekly wrap-up for what was a tough week for stocks. At the start of the week, the S&P 500 slipped below its 200-day moving average. And by the end of the week, the S&P settled 10.3% lower than its July 31st closing high, which is technically a correction, and tested support near the 4,100 level. Many stocks participated in the broad retreat. The S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF and the market cap-weighted S&P fell 2.5% this week. Only one of the 11 S&P 500 sectors logged a gain. Utilities were up 1.2%, while communication services were down 6.3%, energy down 6.2%. Those were the sectors with the largest declines. Weakness in the communication services sector was driven by Alphabet, which is Google, which logged in a 9.8% decline for the week after an earnings report that contained some relatively disappointing growth in its cloud business and Meta Platforms, which fell 3.9% following its earnings report. Microsoft and Amazon were met with positive reactions after reporting quarterly results. Participants were also digesting a slate of mostly better-than-expected earnings results from blue-chip names like Verizon, Coca-Cola, Dow, RTX, General Electric, and 3M. There was a heavy news flow this week. In addition to the aforementioned headlines and earnings news, the headlines included Ford and the UAW reaching a tentative agreement, the European Central Bank leaving its corridor event key interest rates unchanged following a 10 consecutive rate increases, and a batch of economic data. The economic calendar was highlighted by a whopping 4.9% real GDP growth in the third quarter and a September personal income and spending report that failed to show a strong trend in disinflation. Those reports reflect ongoing strength in the economy and inflation that looks somewhat sticky, which is not likely to persuade the Fed to cut rates anytime soon. Treasuries have behaved better this week, but they did not help stocks much. The two-year note yield declined six basis points to 5.03%. The 10-year yield fell seven basis points to 4.85%. And in other news, Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, was elected Speaker of the House. On Monday, the market started and ended the session on a softer note. There was a nice rally, however, that began around mid-morning as stocks climbed and Treasury yields, which had already been moving down, declined further. Upside moves have had the S&P 500 back above its 200-day moving average of 4,235 after the index slipped below the 4,200 level right out the gate, hitting 4,189 at its low. The rally effort coincided with an ex-post from hedge fund manager Bill Ackman, who said that he had covered his short in bonds because there was too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates. The 10-year uh, yield moved from 4.97% to as low as 484 following this remark, and the S&P 500 hit an interday high of 42.55. But the turnaround effort for stocks faded in the afternoon. The S&P 500 closed below its 200-day moving average, spotting a two-tenths of 1% decline. Relative strength from the mega-cap space limited downside moves in the S&P 500 and the Dow Industrial Average, while the NASDAQ composite was up three-tenths of 1% with, with closing with a small gain. The S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF fell six-tenths of 1%. Market breadth reflected a lack of conviction on part of buyers that was related to rising tension in the Middle East, along with hesitation about what rates, where rates are headed in the pickup in earnings reports this week. There was no economic data of any great note on Monday. On Tuesday, the S&P 500 broke a five-day losing streak, closed above its 200-day moving average. All the major industries closed with gains all off their highs, driven by broad-based buying. Stocks hit it on your pocket, though, around 11 a.m. Eastern and pulled back to session lows. 
<clears throat> there was no specific catalyst to account for the midday morning pullback that coincided with some mega caps dipping into negative territory. The overall positive bias was partially a function of recent weakness stirring a rebound mentality. Participants were also digesting a slate of mostly better than expected earnings <clears throat> results from the blue chips uh, names. Bank stock <clears throat> bank stocks were pocket pocket of weakness related to lingering concerns about credit um, quality, deposit costs, and weakening loan demand. Tuesday's economic data was limited to preliminary October S&P 500 global services PMI, which declined to 50.9 from 50.1, 50.1, and manufacturing, which climbed, I should say, to 50.9 from 51.1, and manufacturing PMI, which rose 50 from 48.9.8. On Wednesday, we saw that the trade brought many stocks lower, leaving the major indices near the lows of the day. The S&P 500 closed above its 200-day moving average on Tuesday, but up and below that key level on Wednesday before ultimately sitting around 4,200. The disappointing price action itself acted as a downside catalyst, along with a jump in rates and a big loss in Alphabet following an earnings report that contained some relatively disappointing growth in its cloud business. Microsoft was a winning standout after reporting some impressive growth in its Azura business and other mega-cap stocks slid alongside Alphabet. We saw General Dynamics, Visa, and Waste Management also register gains after impressing with their quarterly results, while Boeing and Texas Instruments saw sizable declines. <clears throat> Yields were already moving up, but turned higher in response to the release of the September new, ho- new Home Sales Report, which showed the strongest annual rate of sales, 759000 since February of last year. Another wave of selling hit the Treasury market at $52 billion five-year notes, a sale that met this small demand. And looking, reviewing Wednesday's economic data, we saw that the weekly mortgage banker association applications were down about 1%. September's new home sales at 759000 The prior was revised to 676000 from 675 for the month before. And the key takeaway from this report is that new home sales activity in September picked up noticeably, added by lower prices, and reported reportedly mortgage rate concessions from builders. And looking at Thursday, Thursday's trade ended on a downbeat note. The biggest factor driving index level price action was relatively weakness in the mega cap stocks. Meta platforms uh, logged a sizable decline after better than reported better than expected earnings, relatively disappointing guidance. Market participants were also digesting a heavy news flow that included a state of earnings warnings, Israel staging a raid on Gaza in preparation for next stages of the war, Ford and UAW reaching a tentative agreement, and the ECB leaving its quarter of key interest rates unchanged following the 10 consecutive rate hikes. Treasury yields moved lower in response to the data, but stocks did not react positively to that. The S&P 500 fell to 4,127 on Thursdays, Low, which was a 10% pullback from its July 31st closing level. Buyers again showed that they're, however, to offer some support and help the major industries climb off the session lows. The bounce stalled out, though, with about an hour left in session, and renewed selling activity had the S&P 500 closed lower, just above correction territory. The broader market is also showing signs of resilience. So, reviewing Thursday's data, we saw weekly initial job claims at 210,000, continuing claims 1.79 million. The key takeaway is that the level of the initial jobless claims does not suggest the labor market is weakening in a material way at this juncture. We also saw September durable goods at 4.7%. September, uh, if you took out transportation, uh, were at a half a percent. The key takeaway in this report is that business spending continues to increase, evidenced by a six-tenths of 1% increase in non-defense spending. The third quarter GDP, the advanced rent number, was 4.9. Prior month in September was 4.1. Was uh, the key takeaway from this report is that the third quarter GDP was nearly, uh, nearly every bit as much as <coughs> that the Atlantic Fed GDP now model estimated at 54 which is to say economic activity surged in the third quarter on the back of consumer shedding some of its uh, uh, light, <clears throat> shedding some light on why the Fed remains inclined to keep rates higher for longer.
We'll come back with Friday's action and the summary for the rest of the week in a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Mother Nature's hotline. Yes, I would like to file a complaint. The summer was way too hot, and then poof, it's into the 50s. Can't you permanently set the weather to sunny and 75 with a slight breeze? I apologize, but unfortunately, that's not how the weather works here at Mother Nature's. Then what am I to do? I'm always either too hot or too cold. Well, we refer all these cases to Linden Sheet Metal. They can't control the weather, but they can certainly help better control the temperatures in your home, so it's always just right. Yes, thank you. Cancel my complaint, please. You're welcome. Oh, and I do recommend you call right away as fall is already here. At Linden Sheet Metal, our mission is to keep your home comfortable year-round with furnaces, ACs, and heat pumps from top-rated equipment like American Standard and Mitsubishi. You can't go wrong. We have equipment in stock, and there are rebates and low monthly payments available. Linden Sheet Metal, serving the Northwest for over 80 years. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Niederhaus of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service congratulates Allied Arts of Whatcom County upon their selection this year for the Community Impact Award. Allied Arts of Whatcom County is one of nine honorees of the 2023 Governor's Arts and Heritage Awards, the highest honor bestowed by the Governor's Office for accomplishments in arts and culture. Active since 1979, the staff and volunteers of Allied Arts of Whatcom County empower artists via events and gallery space, enrich school children through education outreach, and work as local liaisons to art and enthusiasts of all ages. Congratulations to all and thank you for your service to our community. Dedicated to Service is brought to you by Neater House of Luxury with Bellingham's finest selection of jewelry including GIA certified diamonds and lab-grown diamonds and custom design. Neater House of Luxury, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donnie here with you this Saturday morning. We are Asset Advisors. We are located out on the Pacific Highway. That's old Highway 99, parallel to I-5, north of the Slater Road on your right. And we're in the Pacific Commerce Center. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. Okay, continuing on with this week's market activity, we saw that Friday that all the major indices closed near session lows. Negative price action had the S&P 500 down a half a percent. They tested the 4100 level hitting 4103 at its low. Friday's close marked a 10.3% decline in the S&P 500 from its July 31st high, which is a technical correction. Meanwhile, a big gain in Amazon following better-than-expected earnings and guidance helped support the NASDAQ composite, which closed with a four-tenths of 1% gain. Other mega caps outperformed alongside Amazon as evidenced by a half a percent gain in the mega cap growth ETF. Um, semiconductor stocks were another pocket of strength after Intel beat earnings estimates and the PHLX semiconductor climb index climbed 1.2%. Just about everything else, aside from the mega caps in the semiconductor stocks, declined. Eight of the 11 S&P 500 sectors declined, with six of them registering losses greater than 1%. The energy sector was down 2.3%. That was the worst performer by a wide margin thanks to losses at Chevron and Exxon after they reported earnings. The financial sector was down 1.9, was the worst performer weighing down, uh, was the next worst, weighed down by a loss at J.P. Morgan after CEO Jamie Dimon confirmed that he and his family planned to sell a portion of their holdings. The negative bias was partially driven by geopolitical angst over reports that the U.S. carried out airstrikes against Iranian-backed targets in Syria and separate reports that Israel is expanding ground operations in Gaza. Participants learned about these developments ahead of the weekend when markets are closed by for trading and investors cannot react in real time. So reviewing Friday's economic data, we saw that personal income was up three-tenths of one percent. 
September's personal spending was up seven points, or one, seven tenths of one percent. The key takeaway from this report is that the PCE price index and the core PCE price index have a sticky feel to them, meaning they lacked a stronger trend to disinflation. This is not apt to keep the Fed, uh, or this is apt to keep the Fed uh, in a more hawkish mindset, which doesn't mean the Fed will be moved to raise rates soon. It does mean that the Fed won't be thinking about a rate cut anytime soon, however, also. We also saw the October University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Report come in at 63.8. The key takeaway from this report is that the decline relative to the final September reading was owed to weakening sentiment among higher-income consumers and those with sizable stock holdings. Furthermore, expected business conditions weakened among all consumers, and the year-ahead inflation expectations jumped back to the level last seen in last May. So, as of yesterday, year-to-date, we now have the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 2.2% for the year. The NASDAQ is still up 20.8%. Your S&P 500 is up 7.2%. And the Russell 2000 is down 7.1% for the year. Taking a look at our high-frequency data that we follow every week, we saw that initial jobless claims, as I mentioned earlier, for the week ending October 20th were at 210,000. That was an increase of 5%. Over the week before, we also saw continuing jobless claims as of October 13th, 1790000 That was also an increase of 3.2%. Box office receipts, which have been extremely volatile lately, for the week ending October 26th, were down 36.1%. Rail car traffic as of October 20th was up 2.7%. Steel production as of the 23rd was up a half a percent. Hotel occupancy for the week ending the 21st of October was at 69%. That was up 7 tenths of 1%. We saw a drop in TSA checkpoint data as of October 26, an average of 2,456,453 passengers a day were going through TSA checkpoints. That was a drop of about 2% for the week. We also saw the supply of motor gasoline was, was down about 9 tenths of 1%. And global commercial flights as of October 26. 124,796 a day. That was also down a little, about six tenths of 1% for the week. So a slight decline in travel, but a little bit increase in the hotels. You know, we like to follow uh, a number of different uh, topics we're seeing out there. And, and uh, today I want to talk a little bit about the complex landscape of energy in the United States. You know, energy's been a central and highly debated theme particularly in recent years, given that the Biden administration's stance on fossil fuel industry, which is often portrayed as a villain, while concurrently supporting the growth of renewable energy sources. Remarkably, over the past two decades, despite the adversarial political climate towards fossil fuels, advancements such as hydraulic fracking, horizontal drilling have led to significant surge in fossil fuel production, particularly in oil and natural gas. This has propelled the United States into the position of being the world's largest producer of both oil and natural gas. Instead of vilifying fossil fuels, there's a compelling argument to, to, to recognizing that their continued significance in meeting our long-term energy needs. Let's take a look at three different factors that we think that we should look at. One is the U.S. energy production as a share of U.S. energy consumption. Starting from 1950, the share of energy production relative to consumption plummeted from its peak at 105%. In other words, in 1950, 105% of production. So they were actually using more than, the consumption was actually more than our production. And to, in, in 2005, we were using 68.7% of our production in the United States. This decline raised concerns about the United States' growing dependence on foreign energy sources. So in other words, we saw, our, we saw that our our ability to produce locally or nationally had reduced down to where we were uh, dependent on over 30% of our uh, energy needs from from being from foreign uh, uh, sources. Uh, We also saw a blend of traditional and innovative technologies. Hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling ignited an unprecedented energy revolution in the U.S., leading to a staggering surge in overall energy production. From 2005 forward, the United States was witnessed a remarkable 45.4% surge in total energy production. Notably, fossil fuels 
have been the driving force behind the increase, accounting for a substantial 87% of the overall production growth, while renewables have played a very modest role, uh, contributing about 13%. As of 2022, the ratio of energy production to consumption has rebounded by a striking 103.3%. So, and again, once again, we are producing more than we're consuming in the United States. That is marking the highest point since 1953. Then we need to take a look at what U.S. CO2 emissions from energy consumption. CO2 emissions in the United States soared by 153% from 1950 to 2007, but then they've steadily dropped by an impressive 17.9% through the end of 22, surpassing global progress. This reduction coincided with a significant boost in U.S. fossil fuel production, primarily due to fracking. This technology unlocked abundant natural gas reserves, displacing coal, leading to cleaner energy generation. What makes this achievement even more impressive is that it occurred despite an unfriendly regulatory environment in the fossil fuel industry. Then thirdly, let's take a look at the U.S. energy consumption by fuel source. Maybe someday renewables will have their day, but there's still a long road ahead to achieve that reality. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, it's projected that fossil fuels will still account for 66.4% of energy consumption by 2050. That's a decrease from 80.3% in 2022, but still a majority in contrast to renewables that are expected to rise from 11.5% in 2022 to 27.4% by 2050. Given our substantial reliance on fossil fuels, we believe it will be greatly beneficial for the U.S. government to empower and support entrepreneurs in this sector rather than demonizing it in this way and play a pivotal role in shaping the future of our energy. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Homelessness is a challenge many face in Whatcom County, but there is hope. Since 1923, the Lighthouse Mission Ministries has been providing shelter and services for those who need it most. Lighthouse Mission provides a safe and caring environment for individuals and families experiencing homelessness. The mission offers a warm bed, hot meals, and supportive community to help hurting neighbors back on their feet. But they don't stop there. With the help of generous people in our community, the Lighthouse Mission also offers case management, addiction recovery services, job training, and educational resources to help people achieve long-term success. Everyone deserves a chance to rebuild their life. Your help is needed to make that happen. Your donation will make a huge impact on the lives of men and women in our community. Please visit thelighthousemission.org to learn more about how you can help support our neighbors who are homeless. Your donation will make a huge impact on the lives of men and women in our community. Please visit thelighthousemission.org to learn more about how you can help support our neighbors who are homeless. Together, we can provide a brighter future for those in need. Lighthouse Mission Ministries, where hope begins. Learn more at the Lighthouse Mission. Hello, folks. This is Phil George. I'm an elder law and estate planning attorney here in Bellingham, and I'd like to invite you to join me every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m. right here on KGMI for the Aging Hour. If you have questions about Medicare, Medicaid, long-term care costs, probate, wills, trusts, or anything else that has to do with aging, this is the radio show for you. Studies show that more than 70% of estate plans fail when families need them the most. Join us every Saturday and Sunday at 1 p.m., and we can show you how to set your family up for success. Joe Tian here, and I want to invite you to join KGMI on a once-in-a-lifetime adventure with Bel Air Tours and Adventures next June. You'll spend six incredible days in Boston, Cape Cod, and all the surrounding islands. It's KGMI's Cape Cod and the Islands Tour with our own Diana Herolik. Learn more about it this week. Two free informative meetings happening this Wednesday and Thursday. Join Bel Air Tours and KGMI at 6.30 Wednesday night at the Barclay Village Jalapenos Restaurant in Bellingham and at 6.30 Thursday night at Rustler's Front Street Grill in Linden. The KGMI Cape Cod and the Islands Tour. Discover where Paul Revere started his famous midnight ride. Visit Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket Island. This is a bucket list trip led by a professional guide with plenty of time for exploring on your own. Join KGMI and Bel Air Tours for a free informational evening. 6.30 Wednesday at Barkley Jalapenos in Bellingham and 6.30 Thursday in Linden at Rustler's Front Street Grill. Details at KGMI.com. 
the latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. The Israel Defense Forces ground operation in Gaza is expanding. CBS's Remy Innocencio reports. Israel's assault continues with tanks and troops on the ground. You might be hearing explosions near us. That is Israeli outgoing artillery. We're also hearing warplanes above us. Police say the gunman wanted for the mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, has been found dead. CBS's Elaine Quijano reports. Authorities say the shooter's body was found in Lisbon Falls, about 11 miles southeast of Lewiston, with an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. Officials say they notified the victim's families first. Eighteen people were killed in the attacks, several injured. Game one of the World Series and the Rangers beat the Diamondbacks 6-5. to five. Here's one happy fan. Finally, they're here. We're having a good time. They're going to win. Game four, they're going to win. Game two is tonight. CBS News Brief. I'm Linda Kenyon. And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you this Saturday morning. We'll talk a little bit about what's happening in the money market area. We're seeing that uh, investors tend to utilize money market funds during times of uncertainty, such as the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, COVID pandemic in 2020, the banking crisis in 2023. But we need to note that even though the S&P 500 index moved back into bull market territory in June, investors continued to move money into money market funds this year. After growing to a record $5.5 trillion in July of this year, total net assets in the U.S. money market accounts surged to a record $5.7 trillion in early October. As of October 4th, the total money market fund assets stood at $55.71 trillion. That's approximately $1.7 trillion and $920 billion higher than the levels of one in January 4th of 2000, 14th of 2009. That was the peak during the financial crisis and the 5-2020 peak during COVID-19, respectively. A portion of the growth can be attributed to March's banking turmoil, but that doesn't explain why the total net assets invested in money market funds grew by an additional 9.78% between March 29th of this year and October 11th. From March of 20 to March of 22, the Federal Reserve kept federal rates targeted rates when the upper bound about a quarter percent. Since then, the Fed has initiated 11 increases in target rate rising from a quarter percent to five and a half percent as of September 29th. Inflation is measured by changes in the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, stood at 3.7 percent on September 30th of this year. That's down substantially from its high of 9.1 percent in June of 22, but up from its lowest level of 3 percent on June 30th of this year. We think these two factors, combined with the threat of economic recession in the U.S., may partially explain why total assets in U.S. money market funds grew to its record levels in October. Prior to our April 30th of this year, stubbornly high inflation had been a headwind for net yields, which would be yield minus inflation for several years. Now the inflation is receding. Short-term interest rates have begun to reflect positive and real yields again. So what is our key takeaway from this? Well, Total net U.S. money market fund assets stood at $55.71 trillion on October 4th, representing an increase of $508 billion since March 22nd of this year. In our view, positive real yields brought on by higher interest rates and easing inflation, combined with concerns for economic recession, may be driving money market uh, assets higher. While it, we think it is totally uh, it, well, it is healthy to see yields trending upward, Allocations of less uh, risky assets than come in the cost of positive returns. While money market funds may offer uh, principal stability and a yield, their total return 
has lagged the S&P 500 index, which has posted a total return of 15.37% year-to-date through the 17th of October. Um, even, even accounting for the near-term risk of a recession, and we believe that, that an allocation to equities and continued and generate higher returns on capital, capital than cash uh, will over a period of time. So not necessarily saying we should run the money market, but just talking about what's been happening out there. And I thought uh, just um, I saw a report this week, uh, LPN Financial, which is a firm that I went back to in July. I was with them for 35 years, went and returned to them in July. Well, for the quarter that ended here at the end of September, I was one of 462 advisors that went back to LPL or that joined LPL. And LPL is, of course, the largest independent broker-dealer by gross revenue and has beat analyst earnings forecasts in its third quarter, logging in a $3.71 adjusted earnings per share for the third quarter, uh, which was announced after the market close on Thursday. Analyst consensus had expected earnings per share at three fifty nine, and that's according to Zach's Investment Research. They also said that they added, as I mentioned earlier, 462 advisors during this quarter, uh, 1,360 uh, 1, over the last year, now total 22,404 advisors. That's a 6% increase over the number of last year at the end of 22's third quarter. We also had about a one in a trillion quarter uh, 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 trillion dollars under management, which is also a 19% increase year over year. So just a little bit of information on what's happening at LPL, maybe an indication of why I went home, so to speak. Okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the rent control measure that you've got on the ballot. Uh, there was a report this week that came out from Crosscut which is a nonprofit publication affiliated with uh, uh, the public broadcast station uh, uh, Channel 9 in Seattle. And they published an article on the Bellingham Minimum Wage and Rent Control Initiatives on its November ballot. The article, the writer, quotes the initiative sponsor, Jace Cotton, stating that the initiatives would go a long way to preventing homelessness in the community. Well, regarding the rent control measure, engaging in a simplistic first-order thinking might lead to one to believe that requiring landlords to pay a large fee to tenants if they raise rents above the threshold will reduce homelessness. However, looking at the deeper impacts and real-world data shows that it will devastate lower-income tenants and increase homelessness. Proponents of the measure, such as Mr. Cotton, offer no evidence of it or data to support the claim that its requirements would prevent or reduce homelessness. The real-world impact of a similar Portland, Oregon ordinance from which the Bellingham proponents have copied the language almost verbatim has been negative. During the period in which the Portland relocation fee measure had full effect, the number of single-family detached rental units in the city of Portland declined from 27,636 units to 23,669. That's a loss of 3,987 rental units or 14%. In other words, renters, owners have had rental units, sold them, got out of them, condoed them, did something else with them. The exact Portland measure that this initiative copies caused the vacancy rate to plummet. Homelessness in Portland during the period increased. Low vacancy rates are explicitly acknowledged in the text of the Bellingham Initiative are a cause for housing unaffordability. There is no support for its sponsors to claim that such measure has been successful. The initiative ignores the roots of the housing unaffordability problem that is damaging lives of the poor and increasing homelessness. Housing supply shortages in the face of population growth, those shortages are caused by a myriad of zoning and other regulations which go unaddressed in this initiative. Rather, this initiative, as, rather, this initiative, as with other rent control measures, further disincentivizes builders and landlords, and real-world results demonstrate that the further restrict housing supply It'll contribute to increased homelessness, and regardless of the baseless sound bites initiative sponsors provide for the press. So, uh, just my FYI, I voted against it. I don't think it's a good measure. I think it's going to be really negative in the long run. That's why I continue to talk about it. Well, we also saw some news this week that came out that uh, the payroll tax, in this case, the uh, 
Family leave tax is actually going to decrease, not increase as far as the percentage is taken out of your paycheck this year. Uh, basically, what they said is that the payroll tax is going to um, a paid family leave uh, act, which has been been in the last few years. The tax rate that is going to happen this next year will drop from 0.8 percent of your paycheck down to 0.74 percent. Uh, that's a decrease of a less than one percent, of course. And paying seventy-four cents on every hundred dollars is still burdensome. It's also on top of other payroll taxes. A working making fifty thousand in two thousand three had to pay two hundred ninety-one dollars and four cents in payroll taxes for the family leave program. The worker's employer paid an additional hundred and eight ninety-six for the employee. A lot of this can uh, can think a better way to invest this nearly three hundred dollars. Just FYI, yes, the rate's going down a little bit, but it's still a pretty good chunk. It is a it is an income tax, whether you want to look at it or not. Also, another report came out this week. I thought it was really interesting. The Everett Herald claims that the Everett to SeaTac on light rail costs is six dollars, but the closer cost is one hundred and eighty dollars each way. The Everett Herald is reporting a trip from Everett to SeaTac on on the Sound Transit's light rail costs. Is three hundred and fifty dollars or three dollars and fifty cents for the light rail plus two fifty dollars two dollars and fifty cents on the bus, but nothing is could be further from the truth. The true cost of this trip, by uh, it was taken by Jordan Hansen, a Herald reporter, is heavily subsidized by taxpayers in Pierce, King, and Snohomish counties. The residents of Sound Transit's taxing district pay an average of one hundred and seventy nine dollars each way or $358 for a round trip in taxes to subsidize each rider once the full cost is considered. When you compare the true cost of the trip on light rail, $179 versus the car, which is an average of $29.25, that's an generous, that's using a $0.65 cents per mile that the transit ride is, longer, is no longer a bargain. So if you think about the $179 per trip as an exaggeration, light rail in 2021, according to Sound Transit's annual report, cost $163 million to operate and needed an additional $1.9 billion in capital funding for extensions of the line and additional stations. We have seen huge cost overruns to the tune of $50 billion that are also adding up to that total. So that is where that number is coming from. So when you think it only costs this, it's actually costing a whole lot. Dick Downey here with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here on KGMI. We'll be back shortly. Looking to improve your comfort and save money? Start with your home's largest energy consumer, your heating and cooling system. Hi, I'm Brad Barron, CEO of Barron Heating, AC Electrical and Plumbing, with a check-all-the-boxes solution, the Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump. This compact, all-electric system utilizes energy-saving inverter technology to efficiently heat your home in winter and keep it cool during the summer. Delivering year-round comfort, the Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump is environmentally friendly, exceptionally quiet, and maintains maintains consistent temperatures. Plus, you can save up to 30% with the 25C tax credit. Right now, Barron's same-as-cash offer allows you to make a difference with no out-of-pocket expense. Pay no interest and make no payments for 12 months. Lock in 2023's prices and pay nothing until next year. Save energy, save money, pay later. Why wait? Call Barron today about the innovative Daikin Fit Enhanced Heat Pump. Barron, your full-service HVAC electrical and plumbing contractor. Our mission, improving lives. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Nieder House of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service congratulates Allied Arts of Whatcom County upon their selection this year for the Community Impact Award. Allied Arts of Whatcom County is one of nine honorees of the 2023 Governor's Arts and Heritage Awards, the highest honor bestowed by the Governor's Office for accomplishments in arts and culture. Active since 1979, the staff and volunteers of Allied Arts of Whatcom County empower artists via events and gallery space, enrich school children through education outreach, and work as local liaisons to art enthusiasts of all ages. Congratulations to all, and thank you for your service to our community. Dedicated to service, brought to you by Nieder House of Luxury, Whatcom County's premier jewelry store, voted best in the Northwest, featuring an in-house jeweler for quick, affordable service. Nieder House of Luxury, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's back patio. Times are tough for many, and people right here in Whatcom County are struggling to afford food for their families. 
The need for food assistance in Whatcom County is also growing. Our Whatcom County food banks serve an average of 3,500 families every week, and you can help us keep their shelves stocked with a cash donation to the Feed the Need food drive, now through Halloween. You can donate at any Industrial Credit Union branch or at industrialcu.org. And thank you from our local food banks, ICU, and the Cascade Radio Group. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live to County U with you this Saturday morning. If you got questions for me, give me a call 360 733 1200. Well, I saw five charts I thought this week that kind of makes you wonder. I know that. President has asked Congress for another $106 billion more in supplementary emergency spending. That request would put $61 billion to Ukraine, $14 billion to Israel, $13 billion for border security, $10 billion for global humanization aid, and $4 billion to address China. Well, got to take a look a little closer at this and see what's happening with that proposal and where that money is coming from also what could happen if that money is spent. So the first chart that we saw, and I think you need to be aware of here, is that um, investors are starting to be concerned about the level of U.S. debt securities and what the amount of debt that we have. We saw that the Fitch Credit Rating Agency downgraded its assessment of federal finances in August, citing that the complete breakdown in fiscal responsibility. So let's take a look at some of these charts. If you look at the U.S. budget versus the family budget, based on 2023 figures, you'll see that the median family income in the United States today is $74,580. That's the median income. Now, if a family spent money like the federal government, it would spend about $102,961 a year, which means that it would have to put about $28,381 on a credit card. So to say that again, average family makes just short of 75000 If we spent money like the federal government is, we would be spending like 103000 which means that you'd be putting $28,381 a year on your credit cards. Now, that is despite the fact that you already are in debt, $564,749. That is per family. Let's go out here and take a look at the future. Among other things, we have to take a look at a number of the different expenditures that we have, and we find that, for example, that there's three layers of massive debt in trillions today. First of all, 2023, we had a $1.7 trillion budget deficit. That means that our current national debt is a total of $33.7 trillion. Now, that does not include the $75.3 trillion, including $22.4 trillion that, we do, that is unfunded for future Social Security benefits, or the $59.9 trillion that's unfunded for future Medicare expenses. The current debt of $33.6 trillion means that the share of each household is over $258,000. That's the debt. Worse, because the Congress has ignored the financials of uh, social finances, Social Security, Medicare, those programs combined are $75.3 trillion in unfunded liabilities. That's roughly $579,000 per household. This adds up to a total of $837,000 in federal debt and liabilities per household, and few leaders in Washington are willing to even acknowledge that the problem exists. Let's take a look at one of these one of these problems a little bit closer. Let's talk about the the uh, health care subsidies that are there, and we find that we have a number of subsidies in place. We have Obama, we have employer provided tax deductions, so you get a deduction for the employer paid health insurance. You have Obamacare, you have Medicaid, you have your children's health insurance program, and then you have Medicare. And by far. The policy area that the largest effect on the federal budget is health care. Programs such as Medicaid and Medicaid, along with preferential tax treatment for employer-provided health insurance, cost $1.8 trillion in fiscal year 2023. Incredibly, the cost of these provisions is set to nearly double in the next decade, reaching $3.3 trillion by 2033. 
these, we know that there's reforms are available to slow the growth of federal health spending and prevent Medicare from going bankrupt, but sadly we're seeing little appetite that exists among our elected officials to tackle this mounting crisis. And then let's go back over here and talk about the Social Security and the deficits that we're seeing being run up in, in, in there in the deficits and billions. The picture <coughs> similarly is bleak for Social Security. Despite strong, <coughs> excuse me, despite growing revenue from payroll tax, the program's deficits are on a pace to explode over the next few years, driving it to bankruptcy by 2033 or 10 years from now. If that happens, American seniors are going to face an immediate 23% cut in benefits. If you consider the debt and national debt, the unsustainable nature of Social Security and health care subsidies, and a surge in interest rates, this would seem to be a bad time for Uncle Sam to put another $106 billion on the shared credit card or the supplemental budget request. The request is yet another example of the swampy approach to spending <clears throat> because politicians use other people's money. They aren't concerned about the consequences of overspending. This is Washington's business-as-usual mindset in action. The nation's leaders could draw on hundreds of available policy reforms to cut waste and inefficiency to cover the cost of this supplemental package. So little black and white numbers there. <coughs> it sounds like, you know, I'm not saying we shouldn't support Israel. I'm not saying we shouldn't support Ukraine. I'm just saying that we need to make some good decisions somewhere along the line. When we're spending money, especially my money, your money, and it's time for Congress to sit down and do something responsible. <coughs> Boy, excuse me. We also saw a report come out that said car owners are, f- are falling behind on payments to the highest rate on record. Basically, in the in nearly three decades, the interest rate hikes, meaning new, newer loans are more expensive. Millions of car owners are struggling to afford their payments. It's a clear indication of distress at a time when the economy is sending mixed signals, particularly about the health care and health care, the health of consumer spending. The percent of subprime auto borrowers at least 60 days due and they're back on their loans at 6.11% in September. That's the highest data going back to 1994, according to Fitch ratings. In April, that figure slipped from a previous high of 5.93%. But after burning through some tax returns, contending with a shakier job market, and grappling with still elevated inflation, more car owners have become delinquent. Behind the surge in both higher car is, is both higher car prices and borrowing costs. The Federal Reserve is indicating it plans to keep rates higher for longer. The problem is likely to persist, especially as millions of Americans recently stated or started paying their federal student loans again. The subprime the subprime power is being squeezed. <coughs> They, they can often, let's see, they can often be the first line of where we're going to see a negative effects of macroeconomic headwinds. The 27-year college student, for example, in Maryland knew it was risky to neglect her car payment, but she didn't have the money when she looked out her window. One morning in mid-August, she looked, saw that her 2015 Toyota Prius was gone, meaning it had been repossessed. A lot of different examples of affordability crunch, but... <clears throat> having access to a car is necessary for millions of living in areas without reliable transportation. Price for both you and used cars vehicles are historically high, declining only slightly from peaks during the pandemic. There was priced out of many low-income workers that often need a car to work. For those with the best credit cores, <coughs> excuse me. For those with best credit cores, interest rates are about 5.07% for a new car, 7.09% for a used car on average, according to bank rate, and those with the worst credit rates are about 148 and 21.38% for new and used cars, respectively. So extremely high interest rates out there. A person needs to be really careful when they're buying them. And the payment delinquencies rise. Repossessions are expected to increase accordingly. Cox Automotive estimates that 1.5 million vehicles will be seized this year, up from 1.2 million last year, although it's still below pre-pandemic levels. And we get all kinds of questions now and then. we got one about student loan interest reduction was suspended. Wanted to know why. <coughs> Basically, this question was, my stu- a student loan service provider wrote me 
The following message or interest rate reduction to use for using auto pay will be suspended during forbearance or deferment. In other words, you're not making your payments. Your loans listed below are recently approved for deferment or forbearance. Therefore, your interest rate reduction will be suspended. Uh, and once forbearance or deferment ends and your loan enters a repayment status, the benefit will come active again if your loan is still enrolled in auto pay at that time. Basically, they want to know what that meant. Well, most servicers deduct a quarter of a percent in the student loans, uh, student loans interest rate if the individual is set up for auto pay from a bank account. Since in this case, the taxpayer, uh, since he won't be making the payments, they'll have received a full interest amount in the forbearance. Interest will continue to accrue without auto pay discounts. So once they start paying, they pay by auto pay, they get back that quarter of a percent increase or decrease in interest rate. Just a little FYI there. So you'll find that with a lot of cases where auto pay costs you less money. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. Thanks for listening. want to remember our, our show tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And as always, if you got questions for me, give me a call, 360-733-1200. Thanks, and have a great week. on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision.